When we look at the New Jersey Training School for Boys, Jamesburg, that building represents 150 years of 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 children, of of souls and spirits that that won in one way and and, and left another. But the echoes and the screams and the tears, the hurt and pain that are just forever embedded in those walls can't be erased. So each child that goes in there takes on a piece of that hurt. Each child that goes in there carries with them the, the legacy of those that came before them. And when they leave that particular facility and they go back to those communities, they take that with them. They take that hurt, they take that pain, they take that, that sense of hopelessness with them because these buildings are not designed to heal. They're designed to break their spirits. So they're deplorable in the sense that these young people don't they don't come out better than they came in. Welcome to the Newsbeat Podcast, where we examine critical issues of social justice. Each episode features interviews with prominent writers, educators, thought leaders, and activists, and is infused with original music and verses from independent artists. The Newsbeat Podcast, the New York Times Podcast Club Pick of the Week in January 2018, and featured podcast on Best of the Left. Here's your host, Manny Faces. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, host and producer of Newsbeat, where we blend journalism and music to examine some of the most important social justice and civil liberties issues of our time. Welcome to another full episode. As always, Newsbeat is brought to you by Mori Creative Studios, an inbound marketing, sales enablement, and client retention platinum HubSpot partner agency. Learn about all the amazing things they can do for you and your company at moricreative.com. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Youth prisons. As the name states, literally, prison for children. Uh, There are tens of thousands of kids incarcerated across the United States within these facilities, which are often insanely outdated, antiquated, and dilapidated former military prisons dating back to the Civil War. Uh, Conditions inside mirror those of adult prisons. Uh, There's rampant violence and abuse, both physical and psychological, solitary confinement, shackles. I mean, kids are even hogtied by guards in some of these hellholes. And just as with the United States' adult prison population, it's African-American children and kids of color who are locked up at a grossly disproportionate rate than whites. Now, the obvious difference here is that these are, again, children, teenagers, youth. Their minds are still developing, still forming literally still forging those very neurological connections, pathways, and processes responsible for the rational thought and sound judgment that will mold and guide their behaviors and beliefs for the rest of their lives. In fact, research states that the centers of the brain responsible for good judgment and rational thought aren't even fully developed until at least the age of 25 or later. So physically, psychologically, and physiologically, they're just not the same as an adult, and consequently, they act on emotions rather than reason. They live in the moment rather than weighing long-term consequences. They react on impulse rather than logic. So somebody please tell me how it makes sense to treat them, to punish them, as if they were adults. Well, it doesn't. And simply locking kids up in a juvenile detention facility isn't only ineffective, the sky-high recidivism rates prove this, but often dooms them for life before theirs has really even a chance to start. This critical mid-stop across the horrific school-to-prison pipeline is a vastly underreported issue, long overdue for sunlight and action. It has such lasting consequences, and it's so critical for people to understand. So, to break it all down, 
we spoke with Mishi Faruqi, the National Field Director of the nonprofit Youth First Initiative. We feel like rather than trying to improve the conditions of confinement in these prisons, that we need to close them and create a new model of youth justice. Hernan Caravente Martinez, Youth First Initiative's National Youth Partnership Strategist. You can't really help a young person in an environment that, again, just perpetuates these different stereotypes and, and cycles of violence. And James Williams, Juvenile Justice Field Organizer at New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. They need help. They don't need incarceration. They don't need to be put uh, locked away and, and asked five to ten years later to return into society a better person now than you were then. Our very special musical guest this episode, the incredible Napoleon the Legend. All right, here we go. This is Youth Prisons, Juvenile Detentions, Racial Disparity, Rampant Violence, and Lasting Damage. On any given day, there's about 50,000 young people incarcerated in the United States in juvenile facilities. So those are either pretrial detention centers or youth prisons. Race plays a really critical role in youth incarceration. We believe that there's basically two systems of justice in this country. There's one system of justice for white, you know, middle class, upper middle class youth, and then there's another system of justice for youth of color. And so we've seen in every state that young people of color are disproportionately incarcerated in youth prisons. And one of the troubling trends is that as youth incarceration has decreased, the disproportionality is actually increased. And so the proportion of young people of color who are now incarcerated has gone up as we see the numbers of youth incarcerated go down. The model, the youth prison model, goes back over 150 years. These facilities, you know, it's like a, it's a very outdated model. We say that youth prison model is obsolete. This model of taking young people away from their families, away from their communities, and sending them to places often, you know, eight, ten hours away, or, you know, very difficult for family members to stay in contact with their children when they're incarcerated. A lot of these youth prisons really are, are mirror images of adult prisons. And this is particularly true of um, facilities that were renovated in the 80s and the 90s during this idea of the super predator. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. So a lot of these prisons have become, you know, like microcosms of adult prisons. So they have all of the features that you see in adult prisons, the hardware, the barbed wire fences, the steel doors, the, you know, the, just all the correctional practices that you see in adult prisons. So young people will often come into these facilities in leg irons and shackles. They're, they, you know, will be strip searched. They have to wear jumpsuits. The facilities often use things like pepper spray to suppress young people or they'll put them in solitary confinement. Uh, we've seen facilities use things um, like restraint chairs. There's been incidents of staff actually hog-tying children. So you see these very barbaric practices on children and practices that if any parent did this to a child in their home, they would be charged and convicted of child abuse whereas the state is allowed to carry out these practices against young people. 
Adolescence really is the most critical time in a person's development. That's a time when you're really growing and developing and figuring out who you are. Things that happen to a young person um, while they're incarcerated can have ramifications for the rest of their lives in terms of like who they'll be. And there's research that shows that, you know, solitary confinement has negative consequences for anybody, but particularly for adolescents. And time, you know, like it's so different for an adolescent, right? So if you lock up a young person in a cell for 23 hours a day where they have no contact with anyone else, um, and usually these you know, cells are very small rooms, just doing that for like a matter of hours can have negative consequences. But we see that some places, young people are locked in cells for months. Some cases, like the case of Cleve Browder, who was 16, who was locked in solitary confinement for two years out of three years that he was incarcerated. And so that kind of damage that we're doing to young people when we put them in these kind of situations, it's almost impossible to overstate the damage and the trauma that, that happens as a result. When we think about what's causing the school to prison pipeline, you have some young people that have learning disabilities, behavioral disorders that aren't being properly identified. And when you have a school that has a lack of resources and the only available constant resource is that school resource officer, which is tied into a law enforcement component, teachers utilize that because that's the only person that's available. That's the individual that they know can actually bring about some, some level of, of resolution to the issue that they're having in the classroom. So as they work with these young people, the issues aren't properly identified and ultimately they're funneled into, into the youth justice system. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, except for those that are convicted of a crime. So they are subject to what that amendment identifies as servitude. So when you look at New Jersey's disproportionate rates for incarceration from blacks to whites, we lead the nation at 30 to 1. When we identify that with the issue of race, we can see that no longer do we have the plantations, no longer do we have the overt racism that we saw at the early part of our country's founding. Now we have massive incarceration. So the system is working exactly how it's designed to work. All across the nation you see that people of color drastically make up the larger proportion of those that are incarcerated in our prison. So mass incarceration is that new form of slavery. So this this is exactly what unfortunately our nation wanted it to be. 50,000 incarcerated youngsters in jails waiting. Dreams faded, take a plea bargain. Dreaming of being reinstated. It's black and white, 30 to 1. Black still whites in Jersey. The beast got an appetite. That's right, the system's thirsty. Racially, we get profiled. Patiently waiting for trial. Public defenders and no laws. We'd probably be waiting for a while. Khalid Broad, Emily's daughter to bail out. She need deep pockets. This ain't God said this real life. This prison system ain't built right. It's real bad. There's no rehab. They get out and then they relapse. For trade bag to get beat back big court case they can't beat that with the feedback you gotta eat that while the man lays with his feedback feed up we want justice no apologies we don't need that first time i walked into a juvenile detention center was in june of 2008 i had gotten arrested for the crime of attempted murder i stepped foot in spofford juvenile detention center which no longer is open in new york city it was a facility that was not only known for extreme acts of violence in the facility, both from youth and staff, but it was just in deplorable conditions. It was really old um, and people used to call it like the baby Rikers because it was just so bad in there. After being sentenced in October um, of 2008, I was sent to Brookwood Secure Juvenile Detention Center, which is two and a half hours away from New York City. 
It is the largest of four now uh, maximum security facilities for juveniles and essentially houses around 200 plus young people. And so I was sent there after having been sentenced to two to six years, which is what I pled out guilty to. Really, there was no sort of ability to have your own decisions um, in that space. And sort of similar to what I witnessed in juvenile detention was that staff, some of them cared and some of them didn't. Some of them very explicitly one time said to me, I'm just here for my paycheck, kid, and you happen to be my paycheck. So as long as, you know, you do what you need to do, I don't need to put hands on you. And that was sort of the standard, right? I saw a number of things when I was incarcerated from staff. Um, and, and, and I want to be, you know, very clear that it happened on both sides from staff and my own peers. I witnessed some of my peers have their faces dragged on a rug on the ground. And if you've ever actually dragged your skin on a rug, you would know that rug burns hurt, hurt really bad. And so some of my peers would have rug burns after restraints. Others would be restrained so hard that they would have, you know, uh, broken arms, broken, you know, legs, depending on how hard they fell. And they'd end up in the hospital. But similarly, sometimes staff would not expect some of my peers to be as strong and they themselves would get hurt in the process because my peers would fight back. More bad news for the Texas juvenile prison system. Four juvenile advocacy groups allege widespread abuse continues almost four years after the prison system was reorganized by an abuse scandal. A woman walked into a Canyon County court today prepared to get a reduced sentence thanks to a, a plea deal, but the judge rejected the deal and set a date for trial. This is all part of an ongoing case against former workers at the Juvenile Correction Center who allegedly sexually abused several boys serving their terms there. The Youth Law Center filed the 34-page formal complaint asking the Justice Department to investigate the use of pepper spray on more than 100 juveniles in San Diego County detention centers. There's been documented cases of abuse in almost every youth prison system around the country, and we're working right now in um, five states, and so one of um, those states is Wisconsin, and the um, Lincoln Hills Youth Prison, which is the largest youth prison in the country, there's been many, many documented cases of abuse at Lincoln Hills. Um, there was one case where correctional officer in the facility actually slammed a steel door on a young person's foot and his foot was so badly injured that he had to have his toes amputated. There was another case, uh, a girl at the Copper Lake Youth Prison, which is on the same campus as Lincoln Hills in Wisconsin, um, tried to commit suicide. Sydney Briggs tried to hang herself in her cell at the state's youth prison outside of Irma in November of 2015. Guards at Copper Lake saved her, but she suffered a brain injury. She filed a federal lawsuit last year alleging staff ignored signs that she was contemplating suicide and failed to protect her. Staff actually tried to help her commit suicide. The state of Wisconsin just made a settlement with her family um, to pay, I think it's $19 million in that settlement. She's suffered such severe brain damage that she um, is going to need, you know, ongoing medical care for the rest of her life. Some young people describe going, living in facilities that are kind of, in Florida, there was a case of where um, it was called, you know, Fight Club, because staff would actually set up fights between the, um, the young people in the facility and, you know, sort of like wager on which young person is going to, you know, win the fight. Critics say these videos show a disturbing pattern inside Florida juvenile detention center. Fight clubs, teens allegedly encouraged by guards to beat each other. The guard told me to 
beat up another kid. Andrew Ostrovsky, yeah. who was sent away for joyriding in his dad's car, tells us he didn't want to fight, so a guard yeah. retaliated. At the end, I said, you know what, no, I'm not going to do it. This surveillance video shows the officer tossed the then scrawny 14-year-old to the ground, punching him in the face, breaking Andrew's nose in two places. I still have the thoughts about it, and I, like, I still am thinking about it. I still have the visions of it. So usually uh, they'll bribe us with honey buns and stuff like that, you know, with like Skittles or something, and be like, okay, look, bro, this kid disrespecting me, I don't like him, just I'll give you honey bun if you do it. The it this teen was talking about was assaulting another kid. The practice became public following the beating death of Lord Revolte, a 17-year-old who was attacked by as many as 20 other kids in the Miami-Dade Juvenile Detention Center. Some people describe youth prisons as gladiator schools. The, you know, there's just really a you know entrenched culture of violence and harm that happens in these facilities. It's menacing. Some of them innocent sitting in prison, thinking they primitive. Brown and a black men in the tenements, limited image of criminals. Plumbing and coming in terms of the government under the guise of a cover, but gunning us, running us up in the system, the sign to be evil, the devil oppressing us, accusing the kids and abusing the kids, turning around with excuses again. Propaganda, good for the gander, wanna be treated like humans again. Correctional officers, companies, profit and sit in the offices, getting them dollars. The youth is a prop, then the truth is a lie. Stuck in a place where it's hard to survive. Jails in America, facts is empirical, and it's embarrassing. We can do better. That is just terrible. Checking our character. It's about time that we get it together. Call up your senators and representatives. Call up your councilmen, call up the president. And dead all the prejudice, dead all the racism, these are the youth, they ain't no predators. I don't think that the juvenile justice system at this point is set up to help young people prepare for when they're released. Just from my own personal experience of having been released and, and the amount of challenges that I experienced, but also just from having been in youth prisons all over the country. This is an issue that every young person that I've come across experienced, and many of whom even now um, I still remain connected to and some of whom still call me from facilities um, and tell me, you know, how the system failed them in some way. You can't really help a young person in an environment that, again, just perpetuates these different stereotypes and, and cycles of violence and then ultimately that continue to tell young people over and over that you are the worst thing that you've ever done and that we're not going to support you or help you because you are that. They don't work. They just don't work, especially as it pertains to, to youth, as it pertains to children. The human brain doesn't finish fully forming until 25 years of age, so we are pretty much dismantling these children's opportunity for promise, these children's opportunity for progress in life at a very, very early age. We recognize that some of the things that these young people have committed on paper can, can seem egregious, they can seem heinous. But they're coming from neighborhoods and, and communities that are completely devoid of resources. They're completely devoid of opportunity. So when we look at these young people, we're, we're seeing a manifestation of the communities that they come from. They need help, they don't need incarceration. They don't need to be put uh, locked away and, and asked five to 10 years later to return into society a better person now than you were then. So we find that the system doesn't work in, in the sense of rehabilitation. Is it working in terms of mass incarceration? Yes, so my, my goal, my statement to, to anybody would be to look at the racial disparity rates, look at that 30 to one, look at the cost per youth here in the state of New Jersey. The JJC just increased that number to almost $280,000 per year to incarcerate youth. Every state that uses youth prisons has very, very high recidivism rates. The vast majority of them, like nationally, the, the number is 75%. Young people, when they're released, end up coming back into the system.
We believe that the youth prison model cannot be rehabilitated. You know, it's beyond redemption. And so we feel like rather than trying to improve the conditions of confinement in these prisons, that we need to close them and create a new model of youth justice. And so that new model would really focus on community-based programming and so keeping young people with their families, with their communities. And if those families need support, that's where the resources should go. One of the key things that we're working on is to combat the recidivism rate, to, to not only work on it on an intervention and a re-entry, but also a preventative level is what we've transformed it from just not a wraparound model to a community-based system of care. But now we're, we're focused on identifying it as an ecosystem of care. But we would like to have communities that are in need of resources have those resources in an abundance, where you can have a designated building, a designated entity that will be surrounded by therapy, that will be surrounded by counseling, that will be surrounded by a rehabilitative service, that will be surrounded by recreational activities, that will be surrounded by faith-based groups, educational facilities. So we find that all of these types of social resources yield the type of outcomes that we're looking for that put positive characteristical traits into these young people. Tebbing the park, the youth for bebbing the cars, devil and God facing the odds. The man is pulling the strings like the Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. We coming together, but getting involved, doing our part. Families get broken apart, destroying the soul and the heart of the country we live in. We dealing with youth in our numbers, it's making us numb. Making us rumors and stereotypes and the image they painted is making us dumb. Making us dumb. We can do better than that when we deal with the young. Cause after years of the pain, it's really sad what they really become. Break down and reform the system. Change up juvenile detention. Let's take it back to basics. No need for wild inventions. Community-based. Now put in the youth in the cage. We are the youth that we raise. What you gonna be doing today? The Newsbeat Podcast is owned by Newsbeat, Inc. Visit us at usnewsbeat.com. The producer and host of Newsbeat is Manny Faces. Our editor-in-chief is Christopher Taworski. Newsbeat's managing editor is Rashed Meehan. The executive producer of Newsbeat is Jed Morey. Our podcast and website are co-produced and managed by Morey Creative Studios. Newsbeat relies on listener support and grants. Artists that appear on the podcast are compensated for original material. To support Newsbeat or contribute to our Artist-in-Residence program, visit us at usnewsbeat.com and click on support. Subscribe to Newsbeat by Mori Creative Studios wherever you download your podcasts by searching for Newsbeat.